How many of you guys have been catching, like, the Olympics this week? Yeah. Any of you guys that are uh, just using network TV like me? I, I think they're just the swimming games, all right? I'm sorry, I, I love, I'm, I, I, I'll celebrate, you know, um, Michael Phelps being the most decorated Olympic athlete and all that, and, but, you know, it's just like, Michael Phelps wins, Michael Phelps gets interviewed, Chevy commercial, you know, <laughs> and then a commercial about uh, you can get everything on Xfinity and all that, and um, it just seemed like this doldrum just running one thing, just leading right into the next and such. I found it interesting to listen to uh, Eric Metaxas in a Breakpoint um, radio spot where he's sharing about Michael Phelps and sharing about how when he uh, pursued retirement uh, before he came back into swimming to pursue the Olympics again, he had reached such a low point and the question that he was asking is, what am I beyond a swimmer? What am I beyond a swimmer? What is life? He's asking. What is life beyond this? And and it's hard to switch from the entire world celebrating you and, and feeling like nobody really knows you or realizing they're celebrating this one little pie piece of who I am. And maybe all along, the rest of me is just sliding downward. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's truth, the beauty of God walking with us is that he lives within us from that moment of coming to him in relationship by his person and work of Christ and walks forward with us from that point. And he knows every single little bit of us. And I believe he's working to some degree relationally in relationship with us on every single little bit of us. And that doesn't just start when we enter into eternity. It's unbridled at that point. It's unhindered. It's face to face. But he lives with us now. And we live with him now. When we walk with him as our Lord and our Savior. And so we we opened up chapter 7 last week. In asking this question, uh, under this heading of So what does it mean to live large in chapter 6 through 8? In chapter 7, we're asking the question, what do I do with God's do's and don'ts? What what are they meant for? What are are they they telling me? And specifically, Paul is writing to the Roman church from the perspective of recognizing that so many of them are Jewish Christians that are asking, what do I do with God's law? And Paul was, was, came to Christ having been prepared by being a Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he would call himself. But yet, without Christ, was hopeless. 
So he's addressing this idea, and we'll see how he turns this to me, I. This was who I was. This was what I was about. We'll see that in the verses we look at today. But he's addressing this idea and coming from the perspective of God's Mosaic law and summed up in the Ten Commandments. And we've had that summed up for us as well for all, ever since it was given that it could be summed up in loving God with all of ourselves, loving others as much as we love ourselves, which in our fallen state is an impossibility. But it's the standard that we've been given. And so I've just summed this up by principally, how does it relate to, to the Jews of the Old Testament, to, to Paul, to the, to the Jewish believers in the Roman church? I've just summed it up in God's do's and don'ts. How does it relate? And so we saw last week, we looked at verses 1 through 6 from the idea of God's do's and don'ts are useless for salvation. So picking up, just reviewing verses 1 through 6, we read, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, in our discussion of these verses last week, I just want to make it clear, it was not my intention for, for some of you to wonder, oh no, did I come to God in the wrong way? Am I not a Christian? You know, I, I, I've been walking with him all these years, but did I mess it up somehow? In, in looking at this idea that, that, that in coming to Christ, we set aside works and came to him by his grace alone and if i were were approaching this with you and if it seemed like you had trouble with basic growth growth in following christ and i would challenge you to look at your relationship with god to see if it was based on god's grace alone or if you've been basing it on, maybe I've been good enough. Maybe I've done enough. Maybe I've done the right things. As Paul would say, I would encourage you in that moment to examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. And so we, we saw this, this passage kind of summarized in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. How do you approach God's commandments? If you are like me or like most, I think there can tend to be this like disunity in terms of where is obedience? Where is grace? 
And I, and I don't think I'm going to solve that this morning. We're just looking at these verses here. But as we talked about in, in kind of an overview of Romans chapter 7, we talked about the difference between compliance to religious expectations compared to obedience, walking in relationship with God. That, that as Paul tells us, and as, as God reveals to us in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. There's no chance of being condemned to separation from God for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that sets us free to walk by God's commands in obedient relationship. And that's very different, than, different from compliance to religious expectations. A summary idea, and you see it there at the top of your bulletin there. God's do's and don'ts are useful for revealing indwelling sin and helping people to see their need for Christ. God's do's and don'ts are useful for revealing indwelling sin and helping people to see their need for Christ. We're just looking at kind of a pie slice of this aspect of the difference between compliance to religious obligation or religious requirements in contrast with what chapter 8 will, will teach on obedience based on walking in relationship with God under no condemnation. I found it interesting, maybe you've seen this commercial that's between Michael Phelps's gold medals and interviews as well as is the uh, statement that everyone has the slightest amount of gold in their body. And it's like uh, something like point something milligrams. And it goes on to say, and it's concentrated mostly in the heart. And I have no idea what they're talking about. But I think of that statement and I think of how uh, it's universally applied. And what I believe that we see in our verses this morning, that the purpose, one of the purposes of God's do's and don'ts for those who do not walk with him in, under the grace of Christ is to point out and to draw out and to magnify, if you will, the sin that everyone has within them. And it's mostly concentrated in our hearts. It's mostly concentrated. It's revealed in what we desire, in the direction that we do want for our life to go. And we'll see that in these verses, I believe. So picking back up in verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, notice again, Paul is turning to I, he, he's turning to as personal experience. I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin, producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sinful and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So there's two big questions that are being asked in our verses here this morning. And the first of those questions is this. Are God's do's and don'ts good or bad? Are God's do's and don'ts good or bad? And I'll just summarize here for you here what, what verses 1, I'm sorry, verses 7 through 12 are saying. And that is God's do's and don'ts are really good. Whether we're talking about the ultimate summary of love God with all of yourself and love others as much as you love yourself. Or we're talking about it being broken down into the, the summary 10 statements or as, as the Hebrew language would call it, the 10 words of the Ten Commandments. Or we're breaking it down even further into the moral law that God laid out for His people Israel. God's do's and don'ts are really good. But what it shows is that sin is really bad. Sin is really bad. And we see the answer to the question in verse 12. What shall we say? That the law is sin? And the conclusion of verse 12 is the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Specifically, the commandment that Paul is pointing out here, as he says, if you notice, singularly, the commandment is holy and righteous is good, is the 10th commandment of do not covet, which we'll see here was a particular tripping point for Paul, as it would be for any of us. But we'll also see in these verses kind of sin is kind of used back and forth a little bit, maybe a little bit of a confusing way. And and might not draw this out perfectly, um, but there's a difference between the sinfulness, the sin nature that we have, the sin within us that he'll refer to, and the sinning that we do but he'll kind of use the same term of sin back and forth a little bit. But you see that in the question here. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Does the law miss the mark? Is the law um, a problem in itself? Does the law have in itself the principle of sin? Does it cause sinning? And that's kind of that idea of a sinfulness. Is there sinfulness in the law? Is there the principle of sin that causes sinning? And what the answer will be is no. There's sinfulness in us. There's the principle of sin that causes the actions of sinning in us. So first of all, we see kind of an answer to this question. God's commandments tell us of what God desires. We see there, he says, I would not have known sin. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So in some ways, the law performs kind of that head knowledge thing for us. I would have known it. I wouldn't have known it. I knew it through what it says. So Paul is writing, I believe, in his pre-converted state of this is the turmoil that I was in as a Pharisee. I think it even goes earlier, as we'll touch on. But he touches on the principles that are true for all of humanity because all of us have sin dwelling within us as we're, we're told in Romans 3.23 that we looked at. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's certainly true for the Jews that were seeking to abide by God's do's and don'ts for salvation. As I believe the majority of humanity still does today by whatever they define God, it's still down to a comparison between the two. Us compared to him. How do I shake out? How do I rate? So Paul is referencing the 10th commandment, do not covet. And the term that's used here is epithumia. And and maybe you're familiar with that. It's, It's... It's the term that's also used for lust or sinful passions. You know, epidermis, uh, that outer layer of ourselves, the, the desires of that flesh. I mean, what a death blow. What a death knell to the Ten Commandments, all right? We're told to love God with all. Um, above everything else, to not make graven images, and I'm going to miss one, don't trust me here, Um, to honor our father and our mother, to not kill, I'm sorry, not murder, um, to to not commit adultery, to not steal, all these things. And then the tenth one is, and don't lust for something you don't have. That's pretty much the death knell on our own righteousness right there. Are Are you getting that? Are you getting why Paul goes there? And I think he's sharing some autobiographical. That one is the one that I could not get around. We're reminded in, in James 1, 14 through 15 that all sin flows out of our lusts, out of our desires, where we're told each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, his own epithumia, his own coveting. Then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to, gives birth to sin. And, when sin. and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Well, what we're told in, uh, way earlier, that the giving of God's law is that that desire in itself, that coveting, is sin in itself as well. James is just kind of telling us how it is that the, the actions get to where they are. We're told in Romans 1 that we have a desire to worship the created thing rather than the creator. To not be content walking with God and saying, yeah, man, this is great. I really want that too. I I really want um, my car to be that car, not this car. I really wish my house were that house, not this house. I really wish my bank balance were that balance, not this balance. We... We're reminded that we turn our eyes to the created thing rather than the creator. These are big principle here wrapped up in this command. Do not covet 
lust for something that's not yours. Paul is speaking specifically here from the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, but Jesus opened this up even bigger. I love in his Sermon on the Mount as he's talking to the the Pharisees that Paul was a part of, and he says, okay, let's talk about the law. Let's talk about your standard of righteousness. You have heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, let's talk about God's standard of righteousness. If you look on a woman and lust for her, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's kind of saying, remember commandment number 10? Do not covet. Do not lust. And so we've seen here, even in Jesus' teaching, we've seen it in his relationship, that brief relationship with the rich young ruler who comes to him and says, I've, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, in his knowledge, knowing what's, where this is going here, he says, well, obey the commandments. I've done that all ever since I was a child from my upbringing. Okay, then sell all you have and give it all to the poor and then come and talk. It says he went away saddened. He had what he had due to coveting and he knew that his heart couldn't let it go in the first place. In fact, he was He was dead set on getting more. Our standard falls so far short of God's standard. Plain and simple. God's standard goes even as far as our thoughts and our desires. And anybody that is pursuing him based on their own righteousness needs to get that straight. And so God's commands tell us what God's desires, but indwelling sin causes us to sin. And that's where this pops up. But sin, that principle of sin, that sin that is indwelling me, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, that indwelling sin lies dead. And I'm not going to explain that statement 100% satisfactorily for you because I don't have it explained in my mind 100% satisfactorily. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I, I have an opinion about it. Again, covetousness is a perfect example here of, of, of the, the sin that dwells within our heart, within our desires, within our minds, with, that, that's involuntary. And we cannot control it. Don't think about pink elephants. Whatever you do, don't think about pink elephants. Same thing that happens when Paul reads in the law, do not covet. Do not covet what? Do not covet that truck. Whose truck? Is it nicer than my truck? I don't have a truck. I would really like to have a truck. Guess I'm cast into hell forever. That's God's standard. Same as don't desire to have more than what you have. This statement here where it says sin, that sin within us, seizing the opportunity through the commandment. This is a military term, okay? It was used of a military base that would be set up a starting point or a base of operations for an expedition, a springboard for further advance. 
You can see this illustrated as you look at the practices of the Allied forces in uh, the Pacific during, in World War II. Why did they take Iwo Jima? Why, did they, why were they just fighting for each little individual island one at a time? It was so that they could set up a base, so that they could set up an air uh, strip there, so that that base would be able to f be further advancement in their campaign of finally being able to get to Tokyo, where they believed this would bring the war to an end. But, but that's the idea here, that sin looks at the opportunity Sin that dwells within us, even from God's command, seizes that opportunity and sets up a base to say, I rule here. We see also that God's commandments are like God's life-giving bullseye. I didn't really have any better concept of how to explain this, I guess. Says the very commandment promised life. But he makes an interesting statement here in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, speaking specifically of the command, do not covet, Paul. Saul, I guess it would have been by that time. Do not covet, Saul. Sin came alive, and I died. Something, you can see something happen in the innocence of children. You know, it's like a little thing clicks. Mine means, whose toy is this? Mine. To mine means sissy's toy should be mine. Mine. And there's an innocence there. And I, I'm of the opinion that Paul, when he says, I was once alive apart from the law, might be referring to his bar mitzvah. Where as a Jewish boy, and as I understand it here, reading kind of a definition, it's the religious initiation ceremony of a Jewish boy who has reached the age of 13 and is regarded as ready to observe religious precepts and eligible to take part in public worship. So at that point, Saul would have been... Uh, basically given the law, read the law, be basically saying, I will follow the law. And up to that point, there's kind of this innocence. But at that statement of, I will follow the law, do not covet. I just, I just disobeyed the law. I just disobeyed the law again. I just disobeyed the law again. You know, that's God's standard holiness the very commandment do not covet it promised life it was God's bullseye okay great you want a relationship with me based on your works based on obedience to my moral law hit that bullseye on the moon go ahead that's how righteous he is the Pharisee of Pharisee that Paul was couldn't avoid coveting. God's commandments are beautiful and promise life, as Paul and the Psalms tell us. But the same psalmist also tells us, blessed is the man whom God's sins do not count against him.
It's like the woman's t-shirt that I saw in Kroger yesterday. You know, you see these illustrations and you're like, thank you, Lord. You know, and I'm tar- sure it was talking about like s- some sport, you know, some like jive up the, the, the um, intensity, maybe a workout program or something like that. But the shirt simply said, good is not good enough. And that's true of pursuing a relationship with God based on our own actions, based on our own personal righteousness. Our good is never good enough. I, I refer, referenced this before, but you know, C.S. Lewis said, you want to say, oh, thank the Lord, God is good. He said, I'm frightened by that statement because I am not. God is good by such a holy and set apart and, and completely righteous standard. Yes, but I am not. Our good is not God's good, God's level of good. And so God's commands are like a life-giving bullseye, but indwelling sin deceives, leading to death. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, and when the commandment came, sin, that that indwelling sin, came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, here we see that military term again, seizing the opportunity through the commandment. Paul's making it very clear here, word for word, this is what happened. Sin within me seized the opportunity through the commandment. Remember, he's answering the question, are God's do's and don'ts bad? No, sin is. Seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. We looked last year about, last year, well, yesterday, not even yesterday. Okay, last week, there we go. I have that disease of saying words that I don't mean. For while we were living in the flesh, we saw in verse 5, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And we referenced the fact that, that um, living by God's law never really worked anyways. He describes it almost like in comparison to uh, our marriage to Christ. I've got to be careful not to go back here, but, but he's, it's almost like an adulterous relationship that we had. We, we were never able to live faithful to the law anyways. Uh, while we were living in the flesh, prior to salvation, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You know, in different living situations that we've come across, uh, you know, um, while in seminary and things like that, we had to do some research on fleas at different times. Did you know that a flea will lay dormant for up to a year? Like if you close up a house, maybe a rental or something like that, a a flea will lay dormant for up to a year. And if a host, a person's body or, or an animal or something like that, walks through the room, it will immediately spring to life and, and, and go to bite. I mean, that's just nasty to me and frustrating. 
this is, this is the picture that I get from what Paul is saying here, that when the commandment came, sin came alive. It sprung to life. And as verse 5 told us, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. We're working our members to bear fruit for death. The sin that indwells us, like that gold that is in trace amounts in every person's body, that sin that indwells us is not controlled by God's commandments. In our prideful flesh, it comes alive with God's commandments. I don't know if it's like, a, okay, yeah, I can do that. I'm going to tell a story on Zachary here. He, he won't mind it and stuff. But... Um, it reminded me of Muhammad Ali saying he was the best in, in the world and somebody asked him if he'd, he'd ever played golf and he says, no, but if I did, I'm the best. I would be the best at it, you know. Zachary was, um, I, I'm listening to uh, my 11-year-old son going on 20 uh, in the back seat with his friend Thatcher and Thatcher has been, you know, is, is, uh, has been playing tennis for some time and Zachary's sitting back there talking to him and he's like, I could totally beat you in tennis. He's like, Zachary, you could not beat me in tennis. Yeah, I totally could. Zachary, you've, not, you, you've never played tennis. I don't care. I could totally beat you in tennis. And just to hear Thatcher go, Zachary, I've been playing since I was three. <laughs> Unfazed, completely. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. I think this is part of what Paul is talking about. You know, again, I, I don't have anything definitive on this, but I think in some ways we see the law and we say, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, I could do that. I could do that. And I think, like Paul, get to the 10th commandment. Okay, and don't want anything else. Oh. I can't control that. It's not a problem with the commandment. God's commandment graciously shows us how insidious our sin is and hopefully leads us even further to realize wow look at my pride look at my self-righteousness look at my my self-pity oh if God just didn't expect so much of me I mean we'll take this and run with it and it's our sin within us One person said, a sure way to let lose, lose blossoms from the garden is to post a sign that says, don't pick the flowers. Prohibition furnishes a springboard from which sin is all too ready to take off. Another says, the warning don't to a small child may turn out to be a call for action that had not even been contemplated by the child. You ever do that? Now, don't touch that. Don't touch what? I didn't even know it was there. What, why, do you, why do you not want me to touch that? That must be something interesting to touch. You think I'm not big enough to touch that? I, I think I could touch that and not anything happening. I think about the story of the Buddhist convert that was writing a, um, a letter to his dad talking about being in the, in the um, monastery. And he says, Dad, I've found such amazing peace. Um, I, the, the teaching that I've received about letting go of all desire, letting go of any, any uh, dread of things that are quote-unquote bad and desires for things that are quote-unquote good. I've learned um, 
a humility that, that uh, I've never had before, and, and I'm just so encouraged in this direction through all my brothers here, and, and good news is my instructor told me that I might actually make best humble student of next month. I'll let you know how it goes. The sin that indwells us so quickly leaps to life, we're being told. We can't resist the temptation to promote ourselves, even as the most humble. With the pursuit of obedience to God's do's and don'ts, we can't avoid the pride of accomplishment. We don't even realize how measly, our measly accomplishments are tainted by the pride and self-service that we leap toward. And this is why Isaiah writes that even our righteous deeds are filthy rags to the Lord like filthy rags. This is partly why it must be by grace that we are saved, apart from works, so that no one can boast. All of my works are tainted by my sin. What did even God say? It's not your sacrifices I want. It's not your offerings I want. It's a broken and contrite heart. That's the beginning of salvation. That's what I believe, Je- I believe Jesus started out the Beatitudes with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Our ability to boast is only evidence that our most righteous works are filthy, tainted by pride. You know, I... It's back to the idea of World War II in the Pacific... I was watching a documentary about some men that there, as, as so many, so many tens of thousands of men had been sunk in the Pacific by, by U-boats, how, how day after day and night after night, this one group uh, floated in the water, clinging to rafts, clinging to pieces of debris, trying, trying to stay together, and how they said eventually just out of deprivation and loss of hope, uh, some of them would start saying, I see a ship, I see a ship. Or some of them would even say, my mom's calling me, I'm coming. They're like, I'm going to the ship, and they don't see anything. But what do they ended up doing? They would just start swimming out in the sea. And the other guys had just, they were so weak and everything, and they knew it was p- how pointless it was. They wouldn't even try to convince them that they were just swimming to their death. Rescue is good. Rescue is good. But when it's a mirage, it only leads to death. The law is good, but obtaining obedience to God's commands as a means of salvation is Impossible. And it leads to death. Our indwelling sin will screw it up every time. And then tell us, just keep trying. Just keep trying. Surely God means for you to make something of yourself. This is the world that Paul was in prior to his salvation. He talks, tells us about. So what do we do with God's do's and don'ts? 
For one, I think we should use them to warn and to love those who are trusting in their own righteousness. I love um, Ray Comfort's law-based evangelism approach um, where he talks about, uh, it's on, uh, his ministry is called The Way of the Master. And where he, he would ask someone, so do you think you're good enough to live in a relationship with God? And generally the person would say, yeah, I, you know, I think I'm good. I think everything will pan out. It's okay. He says, well, tell me, um, have you ever stolen anything? Just the slightest thing, smallest little thing. Stick of gum, you know, your, your sister's toy, something like that. Like, yeah, I'm sure I have at some point. He says, well, God, by God's standard, that makes you a thief. Have you ever looked on someone in lust? Or have you ever looked at something and said, I wish that was mine? Of course I have. Well, by God's standard, that makes you an adulteress of heart. Have you ever looked at someone and thought, I can't stand that person? Well, by God's standard, that's as bad as killing them. And then he comes out with this. By your own admission, in God's eyes, you're a thieving, adulterate heart who is guilty of murder. Man, you better repent. So that's one way. You know, we, we have a tendency to jump right in and say, hey, do you want to believe in Jesus? Why? Well, because you're guilty. Guilty of what? Well, well, because you have sin that needed to be paid for by him. I, I think sometimes we don't even get that far. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Sure. Where do I sign up? There's a lot of times where it goes. When maybe the question of for what hasn't even been answered, especially in our culture today. The second way that we can respond to God's commands is examine ourselves. Uh, we, can, we can examine and ask God to do that work on the sin that indwells us. Uh, in, in the, the presence of his grace with no condemnation over us, realizing, thank you, Lord, so much that as I look at this sin, I don't have to look at it in fear of I might find so much that it means somehow I've fallen away from you. Or maybe even examine ourselves if we're asking, if maybe our statement to um, where, where do you see yourself after death? Where, where, if God were to say, why should I let you into my, my dwelling place, my presence, into uh, my very uh, living room for eternity? If our statement is, or if our answer is, well, I just hope I've been good enough. Man, I'll t- you need to Repent. Like, repent of what? You need to repent of the pride, even the blasphemous idea that you can stand before God in any righteousness except his own. Except his righteousness. Because the bottom line is, Jesus, when he gave himself to die in our place, he took our sins, he took the penalty of our sins on himself, the condemnation of our sins on himself. 
and paid for those. And he exchanged for that his own righteousness, took our sins and offers his righteousness to cover us with. And when we recognize that and accept that and trust in him and, and, and turn away from thinking that we can save ourselves or we can stand before God in our own personal righteousness, then his righteousness is credited to our account before God. And, and when we're asked the question, I don't know if that's what the question will sound like or whatever, it's not a quiz after you die, but why should I? let you into my presence that our answer would be you shouldn't based on who I am but based on your son and what he offered to me and what he did for me that's why I know that you will welcome me into your presence and that alone so the second question that we're asked here are God's do's and don'ts to blame for man's separation from God? That's where he heads into in this verse 13. Did that which is good, being this commandment, thou shalt not covet, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. No way. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. First answer here, God's commandments show us what we desire. They show us not only what he desires, but they show us what we desire. And what do we do? We desire to be God. From the very beginning, that was the original temptation in the garden. If you take and you eat this, then you can be like God. And that desire was implanted in us and confirmed from that very moment. He says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. In other words, pointed out very clearly. Here's God's standard. Here's you. It's because of sin. It's like to blame God's commands is like blaming an x-ray machine for showing a problem that we have. You get that? Because Paul kind of swings to another extreme here in these verses. <clears throat> in verses 1 through 6, he's kind of aiming at those who think they can have a relationship with God through the law. In these verses 7 through 13, he's kind of aiming at those that think, well, the law is the problem. So maybe we should just get rid of it completely. I don't agree with somebody who's standing in God's righteousness under no condemnation. I don't agree with them saying, therefore, God's commands don't matter. It's not the commands that are the problem. It's still the sin that indwells us. Blaming God's commands is like blaming an x-ray machine for a broken bone. In the same way God's commands show us the self-serving nature of our hearts, the enemy through our selfish flesh, our sinfulness, deceives like the deception of Adam and Eve. Hey, 
Here's your path to being like God. One wrote, take a criminal today, a man caught red-handed, breaking the law. He's arrested, brought to trial, found guilty, and sentenced to prison. He cannot blame the law for his imprisonment. True, it is the law which convicted and sentenced him, but he has no one to blame but himself and his own criminal behavior. Now, what's interesting is that statement is becoming less and less true to our society. Our society more and more is saying, well, this law is a problem. Look at how many people are in prison because of this law. Now, I'm not saying that it should be automatic prison or something, but we don't blame the law for people's behavior. But that just shows how much our culture is moving away from what God designed. So God's commands show us what we desire. We desire to be independent. We desire to be God, but sin always separates us from God. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. We're told in Romans 6, 23 that we looked at, the wages of sin is death. And death is always separation. The separation of the soul from the body. The separation of of, uh, one person from another. The death of that relationship. It's kind of like when, when there's an indie car crash, especially if there's a fatality, um, as it should be. The whole design of the present car, it, the present car design is looked over again. Is there anything in the design of the present indie car that might have led to this crash, might have led to this situation? Is there anything that could have been adjusted? And so often... Um, and plenty of people are like, yeah, cover the wheels. So anyways, but, but so often it comes down to operator error, driver error. That's what we're being told here. It's not the car. It's not the law. It's not the commands. It's sin within the operator. We see also sin in separation always get worse. That through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, may be seen to be clearly sinful. It makes me think of, um, well, I won't go there. Anyways, I was going to give a Monty Python uh, example, but we start to rationalize, don't we? Well, Okay, <laughs> do not covet, all right, yeah, well, whatever, okay. But I've never killed anybody, right? I mean, I don't commit adultery. Okay, lust, yeah, well, okay, well, no, okay, we're sticking to the ten, we're, no, we're sticking to the nine, right? I mean, look at one extension of the Christian church had to remove thou shalt not make a graven image. We rationalize, and, it, and if we can open our eyes, we'll see our sin is just getting worse. Well, I, okay, but I'm not, I'm not guilty of any real big ones. 
That's why we were told if anyone keeps the law and yet stumbles at one point, he's guilty of all of it. It's meant to show us just how sinful our sinfulness is. Uh, Kelly had worked in, in um, more than one hospital on a bone marrow transplant floor. And a bone marrow transplant is a pretty rigorous experience for a patient. Because basically what they're going to do is they're going to recognize that someone's cancer, uh, well, she's going to correct me after this, I'm sure. But a lot of times it's blood cancers or there's a problem with the bone marrow itself. I know that through the process there's so much chemo given that it kills the marrow of the bones. And so red blood cells, white blood cells, those things can't be produced. And so they're going to need to infuse bone marrow into it. So even though it's called a bone marrow transplant, it's attached to a cancerous situation and huge amounts of treatment. And so really what happens is they have to kill the body before they can build it again. They have to kill. The person gets worse before they get better. It's not the presence of the chemo that saves, right? It's the absence of the cancer that saves in that situation. But they've got to infuse it with a replacement to give life again. In coming to Christ, and I believe in, in, a, to, to a, in a smaller cycle of it as well, after we've come to Christ as our Savior, God breaks a person down, shedding their trust and pride in their own righteousness. God saves not because his commands are being obeyed. He saves by the condemnation of sin being removed. And Christ's righteousness being applied. God's commands point out for us the depth of our sinfulness. And especially as we learn how Christ lived them out. What a blessing to have his life to learn from. Remember the whole of God's law is summed up in love for him. And love for others. Loving him with all of ourselves and loving others more than we love ourselves. And 1 Corinthians tells us, even if I were to obey all of God's laws and it not be out of love, it's like I've done nothing. That's God's standard. Can you see how we're already being led to that statement of verse 24? Leading into chapter 8, where he tells, where the chapter 7 says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve a law of sin. There's the rescue. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, I'm sorry, I'm missing, by sending. Let me start back in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God's plan of the gospel is the solution. And the only solution to the sin which indwells us. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for your perfect law. And I thank you, Lord God, that you didn't give us every infinite detail of your righteousness. I think we would just shrivel up and die. But even in ten little statements, We find in there that our heart is our enemy. And you graciously point out the cancer of our sin, Lord. Thank you for the salvation that is ours in Christ. Thank you for saving us from ourselves. Lord, if there be anyone here that's been thinking, I think I measure up pretty well. I think I'm doing all right. And they have not thrown themselves on Christ for their salvation. I pray, Lord God, that you would draw them to confess you as their Savior and their need for the salvation from their sins. And to simply ask for a relationship with you by your grace. Thank you so much. And thank you, Lord, for continuing to live with us, to work with us. Even as you point out to us our sinfulness over and over again, may it drive us to your grace even more. May we celebrate your grace even more. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.